Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise in settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement consulting. Without further delay, here's another episode of Trial Lawyer View with Craig Goldenfarb. Welcome to a special episode of Trial Lawyer View. Joining me today is Craig Goldenfarb, the founder, CEO, and attorney at Gold Law Personal Injury Lawyers. With a career spanning successful litigation and now as the CEO of his law firm, Craig brings a wealth of experience and insights to the table. As a national speaker on personal injury law firm operation and running a firm as a business, Craig's expertise extends far beyond traditional lawyers. In today's special episode, we're going to discover his strategies for running his law firm as CEO, the firm's use of the EOS traction model, and his innovative approach to leveraging data analytics for informed decision-making within his firm. Craig, thank you for joining me today on Trial Lawyer View. I appreciate you taking the time to be here today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So I, I know from our discussions that you've got a unique job title for a trial lawyer. So what, what actually do you do today in your firm? Well, it's funny. Um, I About 15 years ago, I made a conscious decision that I did not really want to practice law anymore. I had been a trial lawyer for probably 12 years, tried a lot of cases, but I realized that I was probably better at running an organization and leading an organization and growing a company. So I shifted from uh, what I call trial attorney to CEO. So when people ask me what I do for a living now, I actually say I'm the CEO of a law firm because that's probably a better reflection of my job description and what I do every day. So given what you just said, how does your firm operate in terms of your leadership structure? Because it sounds like, which is very familiar to me, being a lawyer who's transitioned to being a CEO of a company that assists personal injury law firms all across the country, that it sounds a lot like what I do. Sure. Well, it's interesting. I'm happy to be behind a desk all day. So when I was a trial lawyer, I was happy to be running around and taking depositions and going to trial and going to hearings. But I found that wasn't really life for me. So I actually like being behind a desk and being on a computer and uh, all day. So I'm in meetings most of the day where I'm conducting structured meetings with different people on my leadership team or my executive team, making strategic decisions about my, how my company works. And I do call it a company. I don't even call it a law firm anymore because I run it with a corporate structure based on a system called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is based on a book called Traction, which is a wonderful book on how to run a company, whether it's a law firm or not. And I know that that book and that system of kind of uh, taking a hold of the legal world in the United States right now, especially in the personal injury area. Uh, but I do run my firm and have been running it for about three years on EOS, and it's a wonderful system. So. We have weekly meetings with department heads. I run the strategic vision for the firm. I have a COO and other C-level employees uh, with me on my executive team, and we run it like a business. So I don't have a lot of client contact, 
and we've trained all our staff to uh, handle the cases so well that I don't have to have a lot of client contact, although I, I used to like clients. It's not part of my current job description. Well, I'm very familiar with EOS and traction because we run on that as well. And it is really a phenomenal way of managing the entirety of the way you operate your business. And But it's interesting because most law firms don't operate that way, don't operate as a business. So when you have trial lawyers who are running a firm, but are thinking maybe along these lines of, well, how do I organize my firm as a business? What do you recommend to them if they don't want to do what you've done, which is transition to a CEO role and there's no one within the firm that really wants to do that? How do they go about organizing the law firm so it operates truly like a business? Well, there are lots of ways to do that. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it, most of us went to law school to be lawyers. To actually practice law, which is true. I did too at first, but then I realized I was better at business. So to me, it's like there's a continuum. So on one end, you have me, which is 100% entrepreneur. So if you draw a straight line between my two hands, you got 100% entrepreneur over here, and you have 100% trial lawyer over here. Now, if you want to be a 100% trial lawyer and hate everything having to do with business, then you should work at a law firm. You should be a trial attorney and be an employee because you don't have any business skills and you don't care about business. So you need to work cases, whether you're a pre-suit attorney or a litigation attorney. That should be your job. If you own a business, you've got to figure out where on this spectrum you want to be and where you are right now. So hypothetically, right now, you have three employees and you're spending 90% of your time on law and 10% of your time on stuff you might hate in business. Well, that might not be a great uh, split of your time because my opinion is if you are the owner of a law firm, you need to spend 25% of your time minimum on business if you're small. Once you get above 10 people or 12 people, my opinion is that needs to shift beyond 25% and get up to the 50% um, in order to run an effective company once you're in the double digits as to employees. Once you get above 20 or 30 people, uh, it needs to shift above 50%. And I speak a lot across the country about law firm organization, and I issue an opinion all over the place when I talk, which is if you're looking to be an eight-figure business, which means you're bringing in $10 million or more, you have to spend 75% or more of your time on the business. Now, the only exception to that rule is if you hire a COO, which is a chief operating officer. If you insist on being a trial lawyer and you insist on not spending 75% or more of your time on your business, somebody needs to. And that somebody could be a chief operating officer if you want to have that. So if you insist on being a great trial lawyer and owning your company, you need someone to run your company. And that person should be a COO. So those are my rules. I invented them. But from lecturing, coaching, speaking, and running my own large law firm, um, that's uh, my opinion on kind of how you have to spend your time. And I know quite a few people are like the 50-50 point, which is they spend 50% of the time on their business, 50% of the time on their cases. And you can do that, but it limits your scalability and it limits your growth. And I don't think you can get up to eight figures if that's a goal of yours or if that's something in your, in your mind uh, without seriously considering uh, hiring a COO or shifting your job title. Wow, lot, lots of things to unpack there. I wanted to ask you quickly, if you could maybe say, take the top five things that you think are important for other trial lawyers to understand about running their business from your experience as 
a coach because I know you do coaching with other um, law, law firms and lawyers, uh, as well as the seminars that you do for lawyers. I don't, uh, not asking you to give away all your secrets right here, but it'd be great, I think, to give that little kind of short list of what is really important. Well, I think two important things um, are measuring everything um, and having KPIs. That's that's one important thing, and I'll go into the, the details of that in a moment. The second, which surprises a lot of people when I say that this is in the top three, is work culture and how you treat your people. Um, and I speak you know, specifically on work culture across the country, and it's so important to me. So those two things probably, in, in, and also the way you compensate. So if I were to pick three, it would be measurement with KPIs, uh, work culture, and then a structured and uh, consistent compensation program. So if you'd like me to take you through all three of those, I will do so. I have some questions I wanted to ask you about KPIs specifically, because I think that, that that's a really important topic. But one of the things that you just said really, um, well, both really jumped out at me, which is the culture and then compensation for team members, because one of the things that is so near and dear to my heart is is our culture here. And we call it Synergy Pride, which pride is the acronym for our values so that we really um, make sure that our team members understand the importance of what we do and the importance of serving our clients with professionalism, respect, integrity, dedication, empathy. That's the, the pride thing. Uh, but also having a culture that really supports the people that are here so that they can ultimately deliver on what we're asking them to deliver for trial lawyers and for the injury victims that we're trying to uh, hopefully get them to pay as low as they can on the liens that are asserted against the settlement. So with, with in, in that specific, those two areas, can you talk about what are the most important key takeaways in terms of culture and uh, as well as aligning compensation? Sure. So starting with culture, um, one of the tenets or basic fundamental theories of EOS is having a mission statement and core values. Uh, so, you know, most companies, law firms especially, are like, that's garbage. Who needs that? It doesn't make me any money. Well, I mean, if you the, the way that Book Traction and EOS talks about it is that everyone has to be rowing in the same direction and have the same value system and the same focus. So if you spend a lot of time and energy, you know, they devote a whole chapter in the book on uh, developing your mission statement core values that everyone's going to really stand around and and you don't just decide it in an executive and and tell everybody about it you involve the whole law firm or the whole company because you want it to be a mission statement that everybody believes in and ours at our law firm is we hold accountable those who hurt others now we didn't just decide that amongst our executive team we actually involved the entire law firm and why they started why they came, went into law and the theme of accountability was very important and the theme of people being injured. So we worked on that for a while and the whole the whole team, 80 people now, is behind that mission statement. And we actually uh, got a nice big sign and put it in our waiting room um, on the wall, which is our mission statement. And we got that from the, the concept of a bank. When you walk into Wells Fargo or you walk into certain banks, Charles Schwab, they have their mission statement on the wall. Uh, so we actually put it in our waiting room. And then the other is core values. and uh, usually it's like five to seven core values. And then you weave that throughout all of your uh, documents, throughout all of your letters, through your hiring, your firing, your annual review process. Um, you really get firm buy-in for core values. So our culture it starts with our firm mission statement and core values. 
And then we did something special about 15 years ago, is I hired a office administrator uh, from Disney World. And she had HR training from Disney World. And I thought, wow, as soon as I got her, I realized that her personal mission statement was to make this the happiest place on earth to work. Stole it from Disney World, right? Happiest place on earth. So her goal since she got here was to make my employees so happy that they would never leave. And our turnover is ridiculously low, even in this job market. And we know they get calls from headhunters all the time because they show us the emails they get on LinkedIn and the contacts they get to steal them, but they won't leave. And that is because of the firm culture. And for those lawyers who think that firm culture doesn't matter, you might understand that turnover matters. And if you have a crappy firm culture, you're going to lose employees because they get offered another $1,000 by some other company. And there's no reason they would turn down the $1,000 if they don't love working. So if you want to reduce your turnover, um, firm culture is a great way to do it. And uh, we have um, so many employee happiness programs. We have uh, the Gold Law Games. You know, my law firm is Gold Law here in Florida because my name's Golden Farb. Every month we have a different contest, a different uh, raffle, a different party uh, every month uh, put on by my uh, firm administrator who has now been, we call it promoted, uh, but now she's been narrowed. Her, she's chief, cult, chief culture officer. She's our, she's our CCO. And uh, her entire job is to make our employees happy and make their lives worthwhile and make sure they don't leave. So we've, you know, that's, of course, that's taken many years to be able to pay a chief culture officer at a company. But we've been focusing on that in some respect for 15 years. And if you want to put it in dollars and cents, the basic way to do it is to just to say, what's your turnover? And everybody, even a lawyer can, under, even a caveman, even a lawyer can understand that turnover costs money. And the bottom line with firm culture is people stay and also that people work hard. So one of the things I noticed 15 years ago was, or 10 years ago was people were on their cell phones and, you know, not working and silent quitting, I think they call it now. Um, I really, when I do laps and manage by laps, I walk around. Um, and when my managers walk around, we don't even have any employees anymore who spend an, an inordinate amount of time on their cell phones or playing on, on the web just because of the culture here, because they would feel bad doing it. So if you're good at hiring, good at training, good at keeping people happy, it's just not part of their work ethic that they're going to be on their cell phone six hours a day. So this culture thing that every, a lot of people think is fluffy, I would say given the success of the firms I know that focus on culture, it's not fluffy at all. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read um, any of Joey Coleman's books. He's got um, two books, Never Lose a Customer Again and Never Lose a Employee Again. And both those, like the frameworks are really excellent. And in, a lot of this is is about that, right? It's, it's uh, on the employee side is making sure that as an organization, you're focused on that. And we've got a director of people and culture um, we, we made the decision to go down that path because of how important our team members are to us and making sure that this is the best place possible to, to work. And I, I love that concept of bringing that to law firms because I think that 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 probably is something that's fairly often overlooked. Well, it's overlooked based in part, I mean, to be honest, to the personality of lawyers and the personality that attracts the law, which is usually somewhat unemotional and analytical human being who may not be into fluffy mindfulness and happiness and joy and fun at work. I mean, that's not a, a, a absolute, but it certainly does lead itself to that type of personality. 
So a lot of lawyers are just all about business and they don't say, how was your weekend? You know, when they come in, because they don't care how your weekend was, they just want to get to work. So it's, you know, it was a big learning curve for me going to law school and, you know, with the competitive nature and then getting out and how lawyers are to, to actually shift my brain to being nice, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, if you boil it down, it's you want to you want to have niceness at the top and it'll flow down. So, you know, everything starts at the top. So if you have a jerky boss and a jerky owner, the culture is tough to it's, it's tough to let it bleed down into the company culture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So um, I, I did want to talk to you about the analytics and KPIs because I you think that's another area where I think in 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 this space it has been overlooked. But I think now because of the economy, because of you know the competitiveness in the space that that is going to become more and more important. Can you talk about how you've leveraged data analytic tools for your firm and what specific metrics and KPIs you find most valuable in guiding your firm's business decisions? Sure. Well, when I talk about KPIs, I'm somewhat amazed because I just use an analogy of any other store and I use the uh, a sneaker store as an example which is if you owned a store that sold shoes you would know how much you pay for the shoe from the manufacturer you would know how much you sell the shoe for and you would know your average profit per shoe it's kind of basic in, in business yet if I ask a lawyer what's your acquisition cost per case they don't even know what I'm talking about how, what's your average fee per case, they don't know what I'm talking about. What's your average time that you have that case, whether it settles in pre-suit or whether it settles in litigation? And they're like, I don't measure that. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And so those are three basic metrics right there that every law firm should know, every personal injury law firm should know. And I have, I have 13, you know, I'm very detailed. I've been doing this for 20 years. I have 13, what I call uh, super metrics, which are the 13 facts that you should know in your head. In other words, without looking at your spreadsheets, you should know these by heart if you're a CEO. You know, and I just listed three of them, which is, you know, how much does it cost to get a case uh, for, you know, a certain media you're using, such as television or such as mass media. You can't tell how much it costs to get a case when your referral sources are doctors or lawyers, but with mass media or advertising, you can figure that out. So how much does it cost to get a case? How much is your average fee pre-suit if you settle a case in the pre-suit department? How, what's your average fee in litigation? And those two, those two metrics right there tell you, well, if you settle your average litigation case for six times as much as you do in pre-suit, well, maybe you're a little pre-suit heavy. Maybe you should push more cases into litigation, depending on your staffing. So you can make so many decisions about your company based on those two metrics alone, which is what's your average pre-suit fee per case versus what's your average litigation fee per case. Then you can even break that down even further amongst type of case. So you can do that for auto cases, you know, car accidents. You can do that for slip and falls. I did that a while ago, like 15 years ago, and I realized I was making more money on slip and falls than I was on automobile cases, which is amazing because you get all these firms that say, oh, I don't take slip and fall cases. They stink. And so 15 years ago, I did that analysis, and then I lectured at the Florida Justice Association um, why slip and fall cases are better than car accident cases. That was the name of the speech. And everybody was like, you're an idiot. No way. They all suck because of comparative neg negligence, and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, here's the five reasons why I earn more money on slip and fall cases than auto. Now, the reason I could figure that out is only because I started measuring. I started keeping track of my fees in auto cases versus slip and falls. 
And I realized that slip and falls were a moneymaker. So, and a better moneymaker. And they still are, even with the recent tort reform in Florida, they're still a better moneymaker. So just by measuring, you can make business decisions that may be contrary to what other lawyers or attorneys or law firms are doing because you're measuring things. So I have 13 of those that I measure specifically. I have probably 200 KPIs uh, that I measure in my law firm and each department measures different KPIs. And then I have a dashboard on my screen that I have um, up, up above me, the 65 inch television that I've mounted on my wall. That's my dashboard TV. And frankly, I run my company like a lot of CEOs, based on a big screen that's above their head, uh, looking at KPIs or metrics all day. That's that's what you know the president of big companies do. So I decided, hey, get yourself a, a big ass TV and put all your important metrics on there. So they're on there right now. I look at them all day. So the beginning or the way you do that is you really have to have the technology. And that was one of your questions, is you have to have a case, uh, a system that's not from the 1980s, um, it has to be something modern. Uh, the next generation of uh, software systems, there's only about five. There's Filevine, Litify, Smart Advocate, um, just a handful, maybe five that actually allow you to create your environment and then pull data and do charts and graphs and analytics based on that data. I happen to use Filevine. I'm a big fan of Filevine. I know a lot of people love um, uh, Smart Advocate and Litify. But those are the top three in the market, in my opinion, as far as allowing you to measure KPIs and create reports. Uh, Filevine has a separate system called Periscope, also known as Domo, which allows you to build those, uh, build those reports. And you can create those reports yourself. You can do that on Smart Advocate and Litify as well. I love Filevine. Um, I have uh, developed a Periscope system that shows me my 200 KPIs on different screens. So I give seminars on Periscope and working with Periscope and uh, and Filevine and developing your charts and graphs. So I, you know, I'm so into KPIs that I just consider myself a guy who just looks at charts and graphs all day, and that's really what I spend a lot of my time just looking at charts and graphs. And why do I do that? Because I've, uh, you know, I've read a lot of books on what the CEOs of other companies do, and they're just studying numbers all day. They're meeting people, meeting directors meeting executives, making strategic decisions, and looking at numbers. And, if, and most lawyers don't like any of that. I do. So that's why I decided to change my job <laughs> and become a CEO. So uh, any metric you can think of that I think is important, I have about 200 of them, and each department head is responsible for their own 15 or 20 KPIs. So, you know, we're, we, we started talking about this idea of, of time being spent once the case is settled being uncompensated time right and you you this idea that that's basically a, a case where you're you've earned your fee but you just haven't been paid yet sort of like the a car or i think you used a, a bicycle being sold right but it the, the dollars aren't within the firm yet so the the amount of hours that a lawyer or a paralegal in a firm is spending on lien resolution and even prior to that really just because of the loss of efficiency in the firm are hours that ultimately are uncompensated hours for the firm. So trying to, how do you limit that and how do you measure to make sure that the firm is operating as efficiently as possible within your law firm? Well, there's a couple of ways I do that. The first is again, to measure it. So does your law firm, we do measure the time, the average time between when a case is settled and you get the email or the phone call that the case is settled and when you actually take your fee, which is when the client signs the settlement statement. 
So we have certain um, guidelines and rules in our office that if it's more than 30 days, it goes on a list that goes to the supervisor, the litigation supervisor, the pre-suit supervisor, who then has to get a written reason from the team as to why the fee hasn't been taken yet. And if they're facing any blocks, for instance, a Medicare lien, Medicaid lien, Humana lien, et cetera. So it needs to be documented as to why it's taken more than 30 days. After 60 days, they start to get penalized. In other words, there's a, uh, there's a carrot and a stick program. Carrot is a reward, stick is a penalty. So at 30 days, they must do a, a something in writing in the computer as to why we haven't taken the fee yet and what's the block. Maybe their supervisor can help them out in resolving the problem or get a company like yours to resolve the lien if they're unable to do it or if there's some ERISA issue or something that's complicated. Um, and then at a certain point, it becomes a stick instead of a carrot, which is a penalty. But one of the important carrots that we use here are sticks is that we don't pay our um, attorneys their bonus on cases they settle. We pay attorneys their bonus based on cases where we've taken the fee. So you should never pay an attorney based on a case settled. I mean, why? You don't have the money yet. So that's one of the things. So we're in December right now. And at the end of each quarter, our lawyers want to get their bonuses. So they're not rushing to settle cases. They're rushing to disperse cases, which is a little different. There may be cases that have been sitting in the settled process for four months, but they're rushing to get that lien resolved or rushing to get that last bill resolved because they know they're not getting their bonus until the client signs the settlement statement. So we don't reward settlements. We do keep track of settlements, and then we keep track of the average time that each team takes between settlement and taking the fee. And we have a chart that shows us. We have um, about 14 different uh, uh, fee generation uh, teams, including lawyers and pre-suit teams, and of each of those 14, we have a little chart with a little bar graph onto their average amount of days that it takes between settlement and when they take their fee. And if we show them all that chart, guess what the team in last place looks like? They look like crap. So if we show it all to them and you're in the bottom three, how do you feel? You don't feel so great because you're in the bottom three. And how do you feel if you're in the top three? Well, you feel pretty great. So. You know, accountability is big at our law firm, and we want everybody to compete a little bit because we're all competitive. And if you're in the bottom three and you're at 66 days average between, um, you know, settlement and fee taken, you feel pretty crappy. And your lawyer is also not going to be happy if he's the head of your team or she's the head of your team because that means their bonus is getting delayed. So the first piece of advice I have on everything is if it gets measured, it gets done. It's a great phrase. And if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. So once you start measuring something like the time on desk between settlement and dispersal, all of a sudden people start to care, especially if they're in last place and they're on a chart where it shows they're last out of 13 or 14 teams. So, you know, you can, my first piece of advice on everything is measure it. And, it's, and my second piece of advice on everything is put money behind it. So if you measure it and you put carrots or sticks, penalties or rewards behind anything you want to measure, you're going to be running a good company. Everything. That's how I run my company. Measure it, reward it, or penalize it. I like the rewards better than the penalties. It's better to reward people than penalize in general, but sometimes penalties need to occur. So, I mean, that's just, those are just fundamental parts of running a business is measure it, reward it, or penalize it. I mean, those are three basic fundamental tenets of, of running a good company. So as the CEO of your firm and manage helping to manage and oversee everything. Can you give a couple of examples of how data analytics KPIs has helped you optimize 
how you allocate the resources effectively within your firm and also can identify areas for improvement in the practice? Sure. I think um, one of the ways, a couple ways, one I'll talk about marketing in the second, because marketing doesn't apply to all firms, but it applies to me. But the second is decisions I make based on staffing. So if you measure how many cases each team has, and you actually pay attention to that, I get asked that all the time. How many cases do each, do each of your lawyers have? And that's such a, a detailed and analytical question that there's no right answer. But I do have specific numbers in pre-suit. And unlike many firms, I have a pre-suit department with pre-suit attorneys. And I have a litigation department with litigation attorneys. And many of the firms don't do it that way. And I have found that it's a different personality of lawyer that wants to be a pre-suit attorney versus a litigation attorney. And litigators are high adrenaline you know, guys who like to race motorcycles and, and crash into things and, and they're adrenaline junkies. And pre-suit attorneys are more boring and they're more stable and they have a different personality type if they're good because they want to be in an office all day. They don't need the adrenaline of being in trial or a jury. They're not performers, etc. So they're totally different people. And for the law firms that think that they can um, use a litigator to handle pre-suit cases, I think that that's not a good allocation of their expensive litigation salary that they're earning. And for the people who you think can take a pre-suit person who's afraid of judges and juries and put them into a litigator position, I think that's also a mistake. So in pre-suit, obviously, you can handle a lot more cases. So in pre-suit, we have a certain threshold of number of cases they can handle. And then we have pods, which are teams that they divide up. So we have you know, a five-person team is a pre-suit team with one lawyer. Two, two paralegals and two legal assistants. So we have five-person team. In our particular company, a five-person team can handle up to 300 files in pre-suit, and that's pre-suit. In litigation, we have a four-person team, with, including a lawyer, a paralegal, a scheduling secretary, and a litigation assistant. That's four people, and they can handle about 40 cases. Now, someone might say, where did you come up with those numbers? And the answer is, well, we've screwed it up for many, many years and had the wrong numbers until we experienced many, many, many dozens of people going through these roles and figuring out what the, the perfect numbers are for the way we handle cases. Those are our numbers. Those are the ones with how we train, how we handle the amount of time we spent on our cases, the amount of time we meet with our clients. Those are our numbers. So the way I utilize that data is if in pre-suit, you have an extra, you, if they can handle 300 cases per team of five people, including a lawyer, so one team handles 300 pre-suit cases, if you have an extra 100 or 200 cases that nobody's able to handle, it's about time to hire another team. So you can base your staffing decisions based on your measurement of metrics. So if we have, hypothetically, if you had 1,000 cases in pre-suit, you'd need three teams, that's 900. And when you get up to about 1,100, you need another team because you're nearing the 1200. So that's just a basic metric for pre-suit. How many cases are they handling? Litigation's the same way. If everybody's got 50 cases or 45 cases, that's too many. Time to hire another litigator. So using metrics, a simple metric, which is just simply how many cases do you have? Now you can make staffing decisions. Do I need a new lawyer? Do I need a new paralegal? So that's a very easy to understand staffing decision based on metrics. So that's staffing. And then if you go to marketing, it's even easier because marketing from a business perspective, the numbers are easy, which is how much does it cost to get you a case? And what's your average fee per case from that media? So if you advertise on you know, billboards or TV 
and it costs you $4,000 a case to get a TV case, and your average case settles for a $12,000 fee, that's a three to one return. So it's a three to one ROI, which is what you're looking for. So it's worth being on TV, even though $4,000 per case is quite a bit these days. Um, that's a three to one return. And everyone who does business knows that everything you do should probably have a minimum of a three to one ROI. So in marketing, it's pretty easy to use that acquisition cost per case versus average fee as a measurement of one data point of hundreds we use to figure out and make marketing decisions. The other one I already talked to you about, which is if you figure out your average fee per case in a car accident case versus a slip and fall case, you can make practice area decisions, which is, okay, so do I want to market for slip and fall cases now that I know that they're better than car accident cases? My answer for a couple of years was yes, so I changed my billboards. I was advertising for slip and falls and nobody was. Everybody in West Palm Beach was advertising for car accidents and I was advertising for slip and falls. Why did I do that? Based on metrics, based on data. Now I know everybody in West Palm Beach, I'm gonna drive down the street next week and I'm gonna see all these slip and fall billboards now that I've said that. But, um, but so that's you know, a marketing decision based purely on data. Where do you allocate your marketing dollars and why? So because of these data points that I measure, I can allocate hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in a different direction if I want to, based on the data I receive in the marketing department. Uh, last question. So uh, before we jumped on the podcast, we were talking a little bit about a, uh, an upcoming conference that you are putting on in uh, 2024 for trial lawyers centered around this. Can you briefly explain what that is and what lawyers would learn if they decide to attend that? Sure, thank you for allowing me to do that. So for the past seven years, I've run a seminar called Seven Figure Attorney. And the website is actually spelled out, the word spelled out, sevenfigureattorney.com. And I've done it about seven years and it's a one day seminar. This year it's in Boston, Massachusetts on April 11th, 2024. Um, and it's one day. And the, the way I run the seminar is I don't talk anything about law. It has nothing to do with taking depositions, trial skills, closing arguments, uh, jury selection, none of that. What I talk about is uh, a lot of what I talked about today, which is how to run your law firm like a business to the extent you want to. You don't have to do anything, but to the extent that you want to run it like a business and you want to uh, use some of the concepts that you might have heard today or have heard, um, I speak on compensation models, compensation structures, incentives, KPI-based production incentives. So I talk a lot about how you pay your people. I talk about how you hire, uh, the techniques I use to hire, to maintain people, to keep people. Uh, my, chief, uh, my chief culture officer talks about all of the systems I mentioned earlier, all the employee happiness programs we have and gives away a lot of our secrets as far as how we keep people and what games and raffles and programs and benefits we have. So she talks about her experience both at Walt Disney World that she brought to my law firm. My chief marketing officer uh, talks about a lot of the things that he does, gives away some of our secrets as to how you can market on, you know, on a dime. He doesn't talk about all the TV and billboards I do because not everybody does that. He talks about the stuff you can do as a solo, as a small practice that will differentiate you from your law firm. But a lot of the day is me talking about a lot of the, uh, the, the ways I run my business like a company. And if you just adopt a few of the things I say, um, you're really going to differentiate yourself from a lot of the law firms that are just run like, you know, I hate to say it, they're run like doctor's offices, which is pretty poorly. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not run like businesses. And uh, the, the basic fundamental shift of the day is to strip your ego when you enter the door. 
because our ego is based on our self-worth as attorneys, as attorneys. And we all identify ourselves as an, as an attorney because that's special. Being a doctor or a lawyer makes you feel special. Being a businessman to, must, to most of us lawyers doesn't feel that special. You don't feel that smart anymore. And I had to get past that in order to get past that mental ego shift of how I identify myself to be proud of myself, even though I went to law school, that I'm no longer really a lawyer. And that, that was the first mental shift I had to make about 15 years ago, Jason. I'll tell you, it was very hard. Uh, but I needed to do it in order to get to the job title that I wanted. So the purpose of the day is to help you at least shift your focus a little bit, if you want to, into a business mindset as well as a legal mindset. And I think that's a hard shift to make. We'll, we'll link to the upcoming seminar in the show notes for today's episode. And also, if, if someone listening wants to get a hold of you, ask questions about anything you've talked about, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way is probably my email address. I still do check email, and I'm a little bit too much of a slave to my email, my wife would say. Uh, but it is C Golden Farb. That is the letter C, and then my last name, Golden Farb at 800goldlaw.com. That's the number 800, and then my trade name, goldlaw.com. So I'll be happy to see if I can get your email, which I'm pretty good at doing. And we'll put that into the show notes as well. Craig, awesome to get to connect with you and great discussion. Love getting this opportunity. And uh, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and encourage you to tune in to our next episode for more helpful insights about your practice. This podcast is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Visit SynergySettlements.com to learn more about how we allow trial lawyers to focus on what they do best.